Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Bound the Context. I'm your host, Ryan Shriver. Here today, I have with me, without further introduction, Tom Gilb. Welcome to the program, Tom. Thank you, Ryan, old friend. Coming, coming all the way from Norway, I see. Yes, but born in California. That's right. But California. in fact, I have dual dual citizenship at the moment, which is quite quite useful when you're living in Europe to have a Norwegian citizenship too. <laughs> Absolutely. So Tom, I'm going to introduce you a little bit and I want you to introduce yourself. So Tom, you and I crossed paths, I think in 2005, if you remembered, um, at the yeah, Agile Business Conference. Okay, it's about right. Yeah, in yeah, London. In, in right. London, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I remember you got up at this Agile Conference and you said something to the effect of, unless you're quantifying the business results or improvements, Agile is incrementally better than waterfall or something to that. And everybody was like, ooh, and I was like, who is this guy? And, I, and so I sought you out um, in the breaks and you sat down and you opened up competitive engineering and you showed me things like playing with you thought, showed me impact estimation, you showed me how to measure um, goals or outcomes. And since then, that 45 minute session, you changed the course of my sort of whole career. So, um, you know, we've had long talks since then. I have, it's been a couple of years since we caught up, but you've been very influential uh, to my career and many others around the world. Um, so um, without further ado, why don't you tell our, our folks a bit about yourself um, and a bit about what you do? Okay. Um, at 15, my California family decided to emigrate to London. And two years later, I bumped into this uh, beautiful lady who's in the next room here, uh, an 18-year-old Norwegian delicious blonde. And I, I was smart. I said I grabbed her. And I said, this is the lady, and I got to get her before anybody else does. So I'm a bit, bit precocious because I was only 17. But within a half a year, we had hitchhiked up to Norway. And my, I said, this is a lovely country and lovely people. So uh, I knocked on the door of IBM to get me a job so I could stay. And I knew IBM had world peace through world trade, sort of idealistic like I've always been. And they had computers to play with. And I was an amateur radio operator and loved to play with tech, you know, a nerd. And uh, so uh, they asked me if I could uh, learn any Norwegian since I came 14 days earlier. And I, they, I translated the front page of the Norwegian newspaper for them. And they said, start tomorrow. So that's how I got into IBM without a university degree. I hadn't even finished uh, high school. Wow. <laughs> But uh, they thought I was pretty smart at learning Norwegian fluently in, in two weeks. So that was how I got in. But I was lowest man on the totem pole, mind you, you know, take out the carbon paper from the printer to the trash kind of job and sort the plugs for the plug boards. But I quickly taught myself by reading all the manuals and solving all the problems people had by if I ever saw a gang of people sitting around um uh, the machines and couldn't figure it out I, I volunteered you know and i knew if i persisted i'd figure it out and that's that's always been my my method you know the uh, tackle a problem even if you don't know the answer and hope hope you don't make a fool of yourself anyway so uh i had five years in ibm great great place to start a career at that time and uh quickly went out and became a freelance consultant and within a few years, it was an international freelance consultant. And there weren't many of us out there at the time. So I, I uh, uh, but I, uh, there was a market there for people who were freelance and knew something about computers. So I, I, I did, did quite well and uh, always done quite well 
So I, and, and essentially, uh, I, I learned to appreciate the freedom of being your own boss. And I've still put up with myself. <laughs> <laughs> We're not talking about the lady out there as the other boss at the home, yeah. right? So, yeah. So, uh, uh, so that, you know, that taste of uh, freedom to think the way I want to think was not least essential. Uh, I, 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 I learned in various ways that within certain companies, if you said certain things, uh, you could get frozen out or kicked out and, you know, wasn't. So, but I, I wanted to think whatever I wanted to think. So freedom, freedom, Bill of Rights and all that. And uh, so uh, now as, as early as 1960, looking back, I, I left IBM for a, a few years uh, and started to build a system for one of their customers. And looking back, I built that system in 20 incremental steps, each one delivering value, each one making the old system disappear and the new system appear. And you know what? That's Agile. Yeah. And it worked very well. Now, of course, we didn't call it Agile. I didn't even call it what I call it today, evolutionary value delivery, Evo. But uh, it sure as hell worked well. And so uh, all the projects I did after that time were step-by-step, step, small steps of uh, diving in very quickly. So you had to change the old system. You couldn't just build a new system and replace it. It's a big, that's a big idea. But, but attack the old system and prioritize delivering things that your customer values highly. And make sure it works. And if it doesn't work, change it quick. And if it does work, take another increment until you're all there. And again, that's agile. Okay, so uh, skipping fast forward, uh, I wrote several books. We'll maybe get back to them. But I wrote a book called Principles of Software Engineering Management, published in 88. And you can still buy a paper copy of it, and it's very difficult to get an electronic copy of it for some reason. But, uh, but uh, now fast forward, uh, years later, I began to meet all the guys who signed the Agile Manifesto, uh, Kent Beck. Uh, Bob Martin, Jeff Sutherland, the gang, and uh, they, all of them said, hey, you know, we read your book and got inspired by it in 1988, because it's, it's, it's really all about Agile, although I was calling it evolutionary value delivery in the book, uh, and uh, we, we got inspired by that, and, and uh, you know, they all, all almost said, they didn't say directly, but that's why we built the Agile Manifesto, okay? we uh, Now, they, they made a Big, terrible mistake there because they were so young and immature at the time. Now, now they're old and immature. <laughs> they picked up the idea that we should do things in very small increments and get it right and deliver, try to deliver value. But they, they thought value delivery meant writing the code, you know, translating, say, a user story ultimately into, into code. And I didn't mean that. I didn't say that. I said very clearly that uh, you have to quantify the values. Let's say enhanced security is a value. Enhanced, reduced technical debt is another technical value, but still a value. Yeah. I believe all those things can be quantified and you can set a target much better for the long-term future. And then you can increment your way towards it step by step, delivering a little bit at a time. That's what I clearly wrote then and even as early as 1976 in my software metrics book, I wrote it very clearly, but they didn't pick it up because this idea of quantifying values is to this day, 
little bit alien and foreign to many people. Yes. You know, they they, uh, they 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 like to shout the word value all over the place. But then when when you say, did you quantify it so I understand it and I can I can track progress towards it in a project? No, what do you mean? Quantify? You can't quantify user friendliness. You can't quantify security. You can't quantify organizational flexibility. You know what? They can't because they haven't learned how. By the yes. way, you want the 30-second training course on how to quantify absolutely any value? Say Let's yes. do it right here. Say yes. Yeah. Go ahead, Tom. Okay. So uh, think of a value that uh, would be difficult to quantify but very interesting to get. Let's name it. Love. I'm going to throw this one back. Is that is that too? Is that too oh, hard? Oh, is that too hard? Oh. Right. Well, and as no, you I'm know, some, some of my uh, Dutch friends tried that on me. So what yeah. you do is you write into your browser, love and metrics. Hmm. And you know what? Aside from getting somewhere between one and 300 million hits, you will, uh, on the very first page, find five dissertations of how to do it in practice by very good people. In other words, you cannot think of a value that other people haven't had before you. You'd be pretty original if you managed to do it. You know, security is new, user-friendliness yes. is new, and love isn't new, okay? Yes. By the way, on Have the Most Fun, you will actually uh, key in love and Tom Gilb and maybe TEDx, <laughs> and you'll get my 17-minute talk on the subject, which summarizes everything. But so it turns out that uh, lots of, if you don't know how to quantify a value, that's your weakness, your lack of education, your lack of training. There, you know, the, the, sorry, but uh, cure it quick, Google and get the answer and move on, okay? And then once you've done that, you have the basis for doing agile. I call it value agile. And mm -hmm. one of the things we can put in somewhere uh, a, a free, digital copy of my book, Value Agile. Normal Agile today is really about coding cumulatively and incrementally in small sprints. But the Agile I've always maintained from, from, the, from 1960, done it, 1976, published it in books, is Value Agile, okay? And this means I don't care if you write any code at all. Now, if you're a programmer, that, that might be very offensive. What, you're going to take my job away from me? You know, yes. I write code. That's what I do. And even people like uh, Kent Beck say, I want to write code. I love to write code. I don't want to know about that XP, shit, you know. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> a lot of the guys are were, were programmers. The guys who signed the yeah. Agile Manifesto, that's why it became so code-centric. And, and they, they missed the value point, right? Uh, people like Jeff Sutherland and and uh, and others have woken up and realized what this value is and said so publicly. So I have all their quotations here and there, uh, but they haven't done much about it in terms of changing their methods. Yes. Okay, yeah. but that's another story. Yes. Uh, okay, so uh, let's see. So uh, let me summarize all that. I've I've always been doing practical work from day one, mm -hmm. really. You know, down on the shop floor. And I've always uh, invented methods to make my work easier and better. And then there, I had no university education. I had no textbook. I had no library. Uh, you know, if I could invent it, I had it. And if I didn't, I didn't have people to talk to, to be quite honest. Okay. Wow. Who, you know, could teach me something that I didn't know because they were all also new to the business, you know. Um, so, um, uh, and, and whatever worked, 
I kept on doing. And, and after a while, I wrote it up and put it in my books. Okay. And then there were those who learned from it and there are those who didn't. So, uh, 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 by the way, I should add that my, my father uh, was a, an engineer, but he had 100 U.S. patents. And he wrote a little book on creativity, which oh, I have wow. the manuscript of, never published. By the way, we'll add to the kit of freebies for your, yes. your listeners my book, Innovative Creativity. Remind me to give it to you. Will do. Okay. Yeah. And uh, because uh, it turns out I can package 100 of my sub-methods as ways of being creative. So, for example, setting a quantified value as a target forces you to get creative in figuring out how to get there. Yes. See? Connection. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I just, uh, I still am in, inventing methods, uh, but I, I uh, uh, basically, what I also discovered was there weren't a whole lot of other people talking about the same methods I, I was, even though I thought they were extremely simple and just good common sense and, and stuff like that. But uh, so eventually I, I uh, Ended up teaching, consulting, writing, yeah, all that kind of stuff, like like you do too, you know, lecturing and at conferences. Let's see. Um, so, I, uh, in other words, I'm I'm a I'm a free and independent soul, and I'm uncorrupted by conventional thinking. And my methods work very well. So, one of the things I, I believe everybody should do if they think they have a good method is capture case studies with data about how they succeed. And it's amazing how many methods don't do that at all. I mean, you can't find case studies and you can't find numbers about how good they got. Okay. So, uh, which means they're just saying I have a great method and it's very simple and everybody should follow me and a lot of fools do. But uh, they have, uh, you know, sooner or later people are going to figure out it doesn't work. But that might have wasted a few years of their life. So a lot of uh, enterprise architecture is like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, another free book we're going to give away, which I wrote in frustration, uh, called uh, uh, Systems Enterprise Architecture, SEA, right. free copy of that. Okay. you you got to remind me of all these freebies. No, listen, listen our, our listeners are going to get lots of freebies. Okay, I'd love, to, I'd love to give away free copies of this and that. Frustration uh, of the really stupid enterprise architecture stuff floating around. I'm talking... You know, uh, TOGAF and Zachman and, and all the yeah. certificates. I, I really just, because they have no sense of value and cost, to tell you my primary incrimination. They are, have a religious craft. Interesting. Well, okay, let me I'll, ask you, Tom. No, no, this is awesome. This is awesome. And so when I teach now, you know, um, outcomes, as we call them, essentially what you, your measurable, quantifiable yeah, outcome. Yeah, now, yeah. It, it has come back a bit more in vogue. I've seen it. I haven't been super connected to Agile, but certainly myself, Gabrielle and others who, who created a Mobius, we, we took a lot of barred a lot um, willingly from your methods. And I think that when I teach these methods, the quantification of outcomes seems to still be one of the hardest things. It's simple in concept. And as you explained to me, it's, it's, but it's hard in practice, and, and it still is hard in practice, and 15 years later, when, what do you attribute that to? Do you think it's just, or lack do you find training, it's... Lack, lack of training, training, lack of simple methods for doing it. Mm -hmm. Now, the first time you ever tried to ride a bike, you probably fell down and bruised your knee. Yeah. That was hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a, but, but, but after a while, hey, look, Ma, no hands, you know? 
So, I mean, uh, if, you, if, if you've never learned it and you're just suddenly asked to do it, hey, quantify security, huh? Very intelligent, well-educated people give me the, what? It's soft. You can't do it. They will tell me it cannot be done. They won't even say, can you tell me how to do it? They'll say, it cannot be done. That's mm -hmm. arrogant. People think I'm arrogant, but when I hear <laughs> it can't be done, then I think they're arrogant. Okay. So, uh, and when it's as simple today as Google it with the word metrics after it, I mean, yes. how simple a recipe can you get? Is that too difficult? Is this, can't you Google? What's your problem? Nice, nice. Well, I tell you what, it's 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 changed the way I felt because I came at the agile from to your point. I was a developer, and that was more code centric and things like you know um, iterative and continuous integration stuff. But it wasn't until I came to the conference where I met you, our team at the time. I don't know if I shared this. We had like um, over a thousand stories in our backlog, and I couldn't make sense of a thousand stories. Like, how can you? And so I was looking for something that was a higher level that focused us. And when I came across how you describe measurable goals, it hit me that that was the compass, that that was yeah. really, if we understood well, that and could point direction, then all the other well, stories and decisions we had to make could be in context with that. But without those outcomes as a compass, everybody had lots of ideas and we were just all back and forth and we could never sort of prioritize. And so that had a profound impact on me thinking, and to this day when I teach what's called product owners, how to look at their backlog, one of the first things is what are your outcomes? And 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 I've learned from Gabrielle, we what we do today in Mobius is we have customer outcomes. Those are what's important for your users and customers and business outcomes. Those are important for your organization and you should look at both. But same quantification, same language, same all of that sort of um, um, stuff together. And uh, it resonates today and I'm still surprised how many people are just like, oh my gosh, this is great. Now. When they leave it, do they go out and practice it? That's where we have to work with with everybody <laughs> to continue to practice it. But I'm try, I've learned over my career that quantification can be simple, and you can make it simple, and that's something I yeah. sort of look direct, learn directly it, from. It is, it is terribly simple. There's there's another concept. Uh, uh, actually, I spent ten years of night school at University of Oslo. Afterwards, okay. I, I I started at seventeen with no university education, but I I got one. And uh, but the, in, in Norway, they have a very strange tradition. You are at the university. You are not allowed to take any other exam at the university until you've passed one year of studying philosophy. I, I mean, wow. Descartes and Kant and the gang, yeah. and Socrates. Uh, that's an old tradition, but it's a, it's a good one because those guys knew some interesting stuff. I was just learning yesterday on a on a meetup that Aristotle was deep into biology and wrote 800 volumes on it. I had no idea uh, that well, he, he did that, but I looked it up and sure enough, Aristotle was a biologist. <laughs> anyway, wow. there's one guy there who, who gave me another big clue before Google, uh, and it's Rene Descartes. And the lecture went like this. Rene was asked, uh, how do you figure out big complex problems like, is there a God? And the answer is, Rene said, I take the problem and I decompose it into its constituent parts. That's called uh, analysis or decomposition. And then I take each little part and I master it. I, you know, I, 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 and then I put them all together. That's called synthesis, Cartesian. And, and then I understand the whole thing. Okay. So wow. what's that got to do with the question here? Well, I quickly learned that if, if you want to quantify something like security, user friendliness, or love, 
There's another pathway I teach, and it's in my competitive engineering book. And by the way, free copy, digital, competitive engineering. You want paper, you pay for it, but digital, <laughs> you get it free from us, okay? Now, uh, in it, you'll find a, a chapter five on scales of measure, and you'll find a process, which is Google independent, if you like, of uh, how to quantify anything. And the process begins with this idea, try to decompose that thing you can't quantify into constituent parts. You know, what are the elements of security? What are the elements of user friendliness? What are the elements of love? By the way, if you go to the Bible, Corinthians, it's 113 or 13.1, how to quantify, uh, how to define love, agape, you'll find it's decomposed there into 13 parts. So that's how old this idea of decomposition is. It's in the Bible. It's God's wow. word. Okay. Wow. And uh, yeah, you take a look at that and say, hey, every one of those is, uh, you know, for, for example, uh, uh, the first one is, uh, first sign of love is, is like, suffereth long. And my, I know my wife loves me. She's suffered me. We, we, did our, we had our diamond wedding anniversary 60 years a few, uh, a few months ago, right? That's wonderful. She suffered me long. You know, when I was uh, in, 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 in playing with you at conferences, I was away from her and the four screaming kids. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Having fun. <laughs> so anyway, so but suffereth long. So how long has she suffered me? Well, that's a measure of her love. You know, God's yeah. word. And it's much easier, you know, suffered long. I understand long. How long suffered? Okay. Uh, so, uh, okay. So, um, so the, this simple idea of decompose, the Cartesian decomposition is a great tactic for finding a set of things that you can measure and then the the quantification of the whole is the set of the mm. little things there right set theory mathematics yeah. cartesian analysis no new ideas here right so so that's another path or another way of doing it and you'll find that is uh, how to quantify things like user friendliness into 12 different subsets is in chapter 5 of the competitive engineering book which you're going to get free if you want to yes. know how to that's the most frequently asked question of my courses how do you quantify user friendliness i need more user friendliness yes yes and that's a book that i memorize um i think front and back in the in the years and so you know one of the things i've noticed tom and the way i teach it i will oh, the way you, by the way go ahead, go ahead. I, I told you about a guy that we haven't told the other guys about his name is frederick gibson and he okay. started this company my son's working in. And actually, I'm, I'm a shareholder there, too. It's called graphmetrics.com, right? But uh, he's an architect by education. He told us, Kai and me, that he's read my com uh, competitive engineering book nine times. And I thought he was joking or exaggerating, but he wasn't. How many times wow. have you read competitive engineering, Ryan? Only about twice. I'm sorry, Tom. I, oh, I well, nowhere near. Nowhere near. Nowhere <laughs> near. But that, that's an interesting, you know, that's an interesting comment. Uh, anybody yeah. who's read it at least once is is fantastic. So. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. And I remember your uh, your you would tell me there's ten at least ten unique ideas per page. That was one of the. That's um, right. Things. All of my books. Yes. All. So, of them. So, Tom, you know, the way that you describe decomposition works really well, I think, for these big things. One of the ways I've been teaching the last couple of years that seems to resonate is when we start with the problem statement, we say, how will you know if you've achieved success? And those are clues 
as to what some of your outcomes could be. And oftentimes from there, it helps people brainstorm. And a lot of times I've learned from you that start with a like increase, improve, reduce, and then sort of sort of down phrase, like nice and short and sweet, not like a sentence or two sentences of an outcome, you know, how you can get it down nice and short and sweet. And uh, no, it's absolutely, it, it, it's amazing. So let, let's talk about more uh, stories back here. So I know that you've learned a lot by yourself. You've discovered and created things. Have you had any influences in our industry? Is there any people that influenced your thinking along the way that would be good to sort of share? Now, as I described, I was necessarily very isolated from universities, books, libraries, people. I was in Norway. I wasn't even in like New York City or someplace like that or Silicon Valley. So, so I uh, frankly did not have a lot of influences I can name. I did name one, Rene Descartes, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. Now, another guy came along in my life. Uh, his, his name is W. Edwards Deming, and he came along in my life about 1983. I've mm-hmm. got a signed photograph from him there. And uh, I have a book nobody uh, he gave me as a gift on uh, theory of sampling that nobody knows he even wrote in 1950. Right wow. here, show it to you. But uh, so I, I went on a one-week course with W. Edwards Deming in London. Six hundred people. By the way, I say only six hundred people. They're not very good at training people in UK. Other places he went, there were always one thousand people for his one-week course. Wow. Yeah. And why? Well, uh, he had the reputation of the guy who taught the Japanese to compete with the Americans at like Sony and Toyota. Yes. <laughs> and so everybody wanted to figure out uh, what's this magic, right? Now his his magic is in the simple terms statistical process control, which he learned from uh, Walter Schuert uh, together with Duran in the 1920s and 30s, and and he has his 14 points, you know, like. Uh, mm-hmm. Management shouldn't give you a hard time kind of principles. Anyway, uh, I, I went on his one-week course. By the way, it, 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 one week means nine to five every day. This old man who's my age to, to, today, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm 80 today. He was 83 at the time, right? Born in 1900. Yeah. And and this the old man gets up and talks. Now, he had exactly one slide. His 14 hmm. points. I wow. wonder, well, yeah, what did he do that? <laughs> you know? But our ancestors didn't have a lot of slides. They they told stories over the campfire, yes. I guess, before PowerPoint existed. <laughs> he also had a little game to, with uh, red and, and red and white balls, you know, proving that you you didn't have control over the statistics and stuff. That's about it. He um, he also handed out a little booklet which showed him enjoying going to kabuki dancing in Japan. Hmm. Uh, long story short, I actually invited him to go to the ballet with me, and he did several years Wonderful. in a row. <laughs> so that's how my strange relationship with Dr. Deming started. But uh, Deming inspired me in several ways. One, he had a thing that everybody knows today, plan, do, study, act cycle. Yes. Yeah. You don't know it? Yeah. Look it up. He, he used to call it the Schuert cycle, but people started calling it the Deming-Schuert cycle. And now, this is the same as our Evo cycle, our mm-hmm. evolutionary cycle. Uh, we've just expanded it. Like, we've got a phase called decompose, and he didn't have a phase called decompose. But, but essentially, it's the same thing. It's a learning cycle. And this is, if you think about it, pure agile. 
Okay. Yeah. Now, so so his his cycle been working since the 1920s, very well. Changed Japanese industry very well. Some Americans began to pick it up and do better. Okay, so uh, uh, yeah, so that that told me. You now, so it, what it is? It's a learning and feedback cycle. It said the faster you learn, and that's uh, right. The faster you do, the faster you learn. The faster you learn, the faster you're going to do better. Okay. Now, this in a world of big bang waterfall government yes. projects is a radical idea. Okay. Yes. So. Yeah, so uh, I, I was now I, I was already doing this stuff from 1960, 23 years earlier. So it wasn't like news, but it was nice to hear it confirmed as a theory and, and have a theoretical basis and have a name to it. And the other thing that inspired me with Dr. Deming was he was all alone. He never formed a company and tried to get rich like some of our agile friends. Hmm. I have a diploma right here in, on my wall. I can show it to you. I, I attended his 1983 course, but it didn't say I'm competent in anything. I'm not certain. Yeah. I just, I was there. I can prove it. I got his <laughs> if, if only he'd have learned a certification, that had been his road to, uh, you know, if only certification existed back in the early 80s, maybe that had been. No, uh, no, you, you've got a diploma saying you've been there. And nice. uh, now the thing I, I, I was inspired by, he went all around the first thing he did was he did it you know he really changed major corporations okay mm -hmm. then he wrote a book manuscript which is today his out of the crisis book but it hadn't come out yet and uh, th then he uh, consulted with major corporations you know he'd, he'd uh, he uh, ford tried to get him and and he, he wouldn't even walk in the door until they handed him ten thousand dollars to prove they were serious and he was very skeptical whether they ever listened to him seriously, but they did on the Fort Townis, I believe. Okay. Anyway, uh, the uh, uh, but but above all, he went around the world teaching these courses every week with a thousand people, and a lot of us picked up the ideas. You know, so and and you know, uh, he probably earned some money on it, but he was clearly not. He wasn't doing it for the money. His his course arranger was probably doing it for the money. He yeah. was doing it for the love of transferring knowledge to his students. He was wow. doing it for trying to make the world a better place. He was an idealist. Hmm. Okay. And that's what I learned from him. One person can spend a good part of his life after having mastered certain disciplines going around the world, maybe electronically. Okay. Yeah. Which we're doing right now. Yeah. spreading the ideas to people who are receptive and going to do something about them and become disciples and spread the word. And that's how memes and technology get spread. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. So, so, so he was inspirational in several of those senses, right? I, I didn't learn anything from him. I didn't really know little bit he was a statistician so i learned a little bit more statistics than i learned on my sociology courses <laughs> okay <laughs> but uh but, but i but i was inspired by the person and what he did you know he wasn't in it for the money he was there to try to make uh, his share methods to make humanity better okay wow. he devoted his life to it and he didn't change the whole world but he you know nudged it a little forward that's how we got to where we are our forefathers have been nudging us forward <laughs> and so there's a lot of parallels i think between his 
life in your life then? Would, would you say that's the case? Has I, he been sort of a pattern like for your to, life? Well, uh, I still love to go to the ballet. <laughs> Wonderful. So I actually have to tell you a, a, re a relevant technologically but dumb story there. Okay. I walked up to him about Thursday of the course and I said, Dr. Deming, I, and I wouldn't call him anything. I wouldn't call him Ed or anything like that. Yeah, no. yeah. Dr. Deming. Uh, I, I understand that you you like uh, the arts and, and dance as much as I do. Yep. And I said, well, we're in London, and I'd love to invite you to go to the ballet in London with me. You know, I'll, I'll arrange everything. And he said, oh, I'd love to, but I couldn't possibly do that. I said, why not? He said, because every evening after the course, I have to prepare and enhance and improve. Kaizen improvement. Yes. The course out of respect for my students. Now, wow. remember, he's held the same course since 1930 True. every week. And he has one slide. So you're left wondering, what does he do in this evening? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he meant it. So I said, Dr. Deming, what are you doing on Saturday? He said, Saturday, I'm, I'm taking a Concorde to Brazil to hold a new course. Aha. You don't have to use Friday to prepare for your pupils. You nice. can go to the ballet with me on Friday. Ah, you got me there, Tom. I outwitted him, you know. So we went to, to the uh, Dominion Theater on Tottenham Court Road to see the Leningrad. This is before the wall fell. Yes. The Leningrad Ballet. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> and we, I, we, I came to London every year for several years to take him out to the ballet, and there are more stories there. But wow. uh, <laughs> so, so, so if anybody meets me at a conference and they mm -hmm. want to know how to get to know me personally, they just walk up and say, "I've got ballet tickets, Tom." <laughs> there coming? you go, folks. There you go, folks. That, that's the magic ticket to get Tom out and uh, and pick your brain. Yeah. Um, hey, so so Tom, we could you and I could talk. For, for hours and hours and we're remiss I, i'm remiss at catching up with you but let me want to, to wrap it up here what is top of so you've seen this, this sort of enormous change you brought a lot of these ideas you've seen agile come and it's become more popular now than ever where do you see things going from here do you have a vantage point of like where do you see i know you're sort of semi-retired but you still write a lot and you're still very in, involved where do you see sort of this kind of movement if you will um the agilist I won't call it movement, but that, where do you see it going from here? And, and are yeah. you optimistic or are you nervous about that? Long perspective. I mean, 63 years in the business or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and I see uh, change and I see lack of change. There's an okay. awful lot of lack of change. Honestly, I don't think we're so much smarter about IT projects than we were decades ago. Uh, if you look at the failure rates, you know, the chaos report and things like that, yeah, yeah. the failure rates of IT projects are roughly the same. I mean, they're not down there at 0.01. They're still at between 10 and 60%. And Agile only reduces it slightly because you're forced to eat your own dog food so often, right? So, uh, so basically, we've not solved the simple problem of reasonably successful projects every time we do a project. We have an incredibly high documented, consistent long-term failure rate of our projects. Let's just take a rough approximation, uh, order of magnitude, uh, 40, 50% total failure, you know, disband, disbanded scandal, and another 
40% challenge, like cost three times too much, although it works. And it, it would never would have started if you knew that, but the money sunk, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, we are abominable as a profession, okay? And, and other professions can be abominable too. But, I mean, imagine if 50% of all the houses that got put up got got uh, burned down the, the day afterwards. And, and, and uh, after another 40%, nobody wanted to live in them after three years. That's us. <laughs> Yeah. That's ridiculous. The building business, uh, admittedly, building business has been there longer than software business, so they've had a long time to figure this out, okay? And that's our excuse. But it isn't good enough. I believe with the incremental value delivery is the key to reducing the failure rate dramatically, simply because the biggest failure you can have is an increment before you revise everything and, and, and get back on track. As IBM Clean Room under Harlan Mills proved and is well documented. Remind me to give them the documentation on the Clean Room method, will you? Yes, of okay. course. So, uh, uh, all, uh, all years on end, all these high tech space and military projects were delivered the highest quality, the highest complexity, the state of the art, on time, under budget, every time, using methods essentially the same as my Evo method. Okay? Now, when will we ever learn what is already well-known and well-documented? Okay, that's that's my question. So now, so the prognosis. Uh, I see us bumping along another few decades, screwing up the projects as bad as ever. There's, there's you know, we, we need at least the equivalent of the Third World War and losing it to wake us up to the fact that maybe we should do things different. We need much worse than COVID. You have to wake okay. us up, okay? And and then so I now uh, we certainly cannot. Uh, if you look at history of change of methods and customs, it, it's it's not a ten year cycle thing. You know, we're, I'm just into my sixth decade. It's six hundred years. It's six thousand years, right? So what's my when when do we all get good? Like I'd like to have people all do things properly. The first estimate. Uh, Order of magnitude, half of people doing projects like this, maybe in a hundred years. You and I are dead, long dead, right? Yes. I'm. Why I write, why I write so much now, that's so the archaeologists dig it up, <laughs> translate it, and they say, gee, we should use Gilb's methods now. <laughs> I, I, I have little faith that we will have large-scale pervasive spread of sane common sense methods. I mean, we're still so primitive that we go to war with each other and kill each other and kill little innocent civilians. And, and you know, we haven't done very well there either, right? Yeah. So why should we, why should we in a non-deadly sport like IT get so much better, so much faster, okay? But uh, in the long term, if humanity wants to be successful and uh, then some enlightened souls will impose this discipline of quantifying our values and working towards them one step at a time. That's the method. But right now, there are a lot of people not interested at all. They're just not interested. Okay. By the way, that's the bad news. The good news is there have been a lot of special companies that have been interested and done it very well, and they've been my clients. So we're talking Hewlett-Packard, IBM, Intel, Boeing, Ericsson, first-class companies, Philips, right? First class companies, uh, engineering companies competing multinationally already had a successful culture. They have found my methods. I didn't 
knock on their door and, and bid on anything. And they said, your methods are what we need to keep on succeeding. So we will do them and we will spread them. And they did. So we, you know, the, 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 the documentation that they're very successful, I got that. Uh, the, the, the simplest metric is that um, our, our friend Eric Simmons started about 1999 all alone, unasked. And by 2016, he'd taught over 20,000 Intel engineers a two or three day course on my methods, and they continued practicing and spreading it because it worked and they didn't find anything better. Okay, yeah. that's the proof. Okay, but first it's good, it's useful to have what I call an engineering mindset. You know, engineers are gung-ho right away. Programmers mm -hmm. who are not engineers, uh-uh, got nothing to do with programming. You know, yes. object-oriented and da-da-da-da-da. They just, they don't have this quantitative mindset at all. And they don't seem to care about success. They put it this way. It's amazing how well-paid we've all gotten for failed projects. And then when they fail, guess what? You get paid once more to do it again. I mean, how to keep a job, keep on failing, and people are foolish enough to keep on paying. Uh, the the day you discovered you couldn't feed your family because you you failed too often, you might get interested in these methods. Wow, Is that dramatic wow. enough? <laughs> that is dramatic enough. So, Tom, it's so great to reconnect with you. Thank you for uh, coming with us from Norway, and thank you for all your work. I know you and Kai have contributed to helping educate myself and scores and scores of folks out there who, are, who came and learned your methods, and we pick it up and we still continue it on. So we're we're not dimming, but we're helping to you know, bring the methods along. I teach it professionally. And I teach an art school right now. And I teach art students quantification outcomes. And so Ooh, it can work. You got to tell me yeah. more about that because I didn't know about it. You're going to send me a case study, aren't you? I'm working on a case study, but we're, I've been teaching an art school and I've learned that that's one of the hardest things to do, but take young artists. And if you say, what are you trying to achieve with the outcomes, then use that to brainstorm all kinds of different ideas. And uh, promise yeah. me, you tell me more. Promise I me, will, you tell Tom. me more. I want to I will, Tom. So, Tom, great. thank you very much for joining us again. It's so great to have you reconnect, and I'll make sure I follow up. I want to stay in close contact with you. Thanks for the invitation, and yes, close contact. No problem. Awesome. Awesome, Tom. All right, take care. Thanks, everybody.